Hello, and welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Matt Reynolds, a legal affairs writer with the ABA Journal in Chicago. Today, I'm joined by Korean novelist Michelle Good to talk about her 2020 novel, Vibeless All Indians. Hi, Michelle. How are you doing today? Well, hello. I'm so happy to be here today. It's a lovely day, and I'm just so pleased to be able to be chatting with you today. And where are you joining us from today? I'm joining you from Maple Creek, Saskatchewan, tiny little town in the southwest near the sacred Cypress Hills. So um, your novel, it traces the story of five teenagers who have left the Canadian residential school system um, and they end up in like East Vancouver. Um, I just wanted to kind of start um, with a little bit of background. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the Canadian residential school system and also um, why you chose this as a subject to your first book? Certainly. Um, The residential school system in Canada, it started informally, if you will, with religious organizations hosting, if you will, um, small boarding schools and so on and so forth. But in the sort of mid-1800s towards the 1870s, if you will, the um, Federal Department of Indian Affairs newly formed um, and following on the first Indian Act, the first piece of legislation, commissioned a study to look at the American Indian boarding school system. And uh, a fellow by the name of uh, Flood Davin, um, who was a father of Confederation and an MP at the time, uh, went to the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania and was very impressed with the uh, contractual relationship that the that the government had with the churches to actually administer the program. So all the federal government was doing it, it relieved them of oversight and all of those sorts of uh, administrative obligations. And they basically paid a per diem for these church entities to run the schools. Um, and the the fellow who uh, the architect of the system was a fellow by the name of Henry Pratt. Um, And Flood Devon met with him in the U.S. And (laughs) Pratt is quoted as saying that it is a remarkably effective system for deconstructing Indian children. Um, And so if anybody ever thought that this was a uh, well-intentioned endeavor, they just need to think about that. Why would Indian children have to be deconstructed, so to speak? In terms of why I chose this particular subject and my approach to this subject was because my entire life was really immersed in the issues related to residential school. My mother was a survivor, my grandmother, my aunties, my uncles, cousins, everybody. My mother married a non-Indigenous man and lost her Indian status. That's what used to happen in Canada. And so her children were protected from that experience in that way. But you know, virtually I was surrounded by the horrors of that experience, of my mother's experience. And it was kind of amusing because I grew up in a non-Indigenous community. And my mother, the first time she told me anything about it, well, let me just step back a little bit. She, uh, She used to call it boarding school. And, you know, I'm a little kid. I'm 11 years old and I'm reading, um, I'm reading stories appropriate for my age about boarding school and thinking about France and Switzerland and, you know, those kind of boarding schools. And then she told me about Lily, about her little friend hemorrhaging to death from tuberculosis on the playground. And I went through this shocking experience of cognitive dissonance. How could this have happened to my mother? And then she started opening up a little bit about, you know, other experiences and how they impacted her. And, you know, that it was like that 
it became a part of my psyche in that moment and something that haunted me for the rest of my life. You know, and then, you know, as things turned out, I ended up representing survivors. Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of the background to it. The book itself, we can we can talk about as well. And um, I know in the US, with the, the boarding school system here, many of these young children, children were ripped from their families um, and forced into these schools. Was, was that the um, same thing with, with your mother? Yes. And uh, it's very interesting because for a period of time, attendance at these schools was not mandatory. Um, but people were pulling their children out of the schools and not sending them to the schools because they were dying there. And, you know, it was such a horrible experience. So it was in 1920 that they made attendance at the schools mandatory um, under uh, and parents or, you know, guardians or whatever could be either thrown in jail or fined if they refused to send their children to to the schools. And so, you know, there was this uh, legal requirement that these kids go and, yeah, ripped away. Um, My mom was nine when she went. She did not speak a single word of English. She only spoke Cree and was punished for speaking Cree. It was just dreadful. Just, um, you know, it was a system that was designed to to just destroy the Indigenous sense of being, the Indigenous reality. And it's interesting because during the parliamentary debates, when they were uh, debating whether to make attendance mandatory, Sir John A. Macdonald was noted as saying that uh, when the school is on the reserve, when the school is in the village, he often used village interchangeably, they still are under the influence of their parents who are savages. And so they may learn to read and write, but they will just be savages who can read and write. And, and who was uh, Johnny MacDonald? He was the first head of the Department of Indian Affairs here, and then he ultimately became uh, Prime Minister of Canada. And your your story, um, as I mentioned, it, it's kind of set at least in the beginning in East Vancouver, and it kind of traces the um, the, the lives of these um, five teenagers. Um, I just wanted to kind of ask you because I was particularly drawn to the story of, of Kenny and Lucy, and to me they were kind of at the heart of the story. Um, well, what can you tell us about those characters and, and how you um, created them for this book? Well, I'll I'll start by saying that it was not my intention. There's been a lot of work that's been done um, in the form of memoirs of survivors, in the form of, you know, academic work about what happened in the schools, the actual experience in the schools. My priority was to talk about what happens after. And it was largely in response to this sort of ubiquitous question here in Canada, which was, why can't they just get over it? And so I wanted to answer that question. I wanted to just provide a a foundation of what happened in the schools and then move into then when they left the schools with these with no support and with these, you know, tremendous burdens of psychological injury. How did they cope? How did they survive? And, you know, this happened a lot that either kids whose families couldn't be found were just unceremoniously dumped or they couldn't make it at home because the relationships were so were so damaged. Um, the first character that I wrote uh, was one little paragraph about Kenny. And uh, I immediately knew that I was going to need more characters to carry the full brunt, if you will, of the various kinds of injuries and the various kinds of impacts that arose from those injuries. And uh, and so it just sort of emerged that way. We see Kenny at the beginning of the book, 
and we see that burgeoning relationship between him and little Lucy, right? And, you know, I love the relationship between Kenny and Lucy because poor Kenny, you know, his character really demonstrates that this was a life and death experience. He was running not only to go home, right? But he, you know, he tried many times to escape the school and was punished brutally for doing so. And he was doing that not only to get home, but because he was in fear of his life. And when you're that little, you know, when you're just a, a child and you're dealing with a life-threatening dynamic, what happened to Kenny is he could never stop running again. He just could never stop running, regardless of the depth of his love and affection for Lucy and her acceptance of him. You know, he just couldn't stop. It was just sort of written on the hard drive, if you will, that he was constantly running, which is a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, is this constant urge to run. And... uh and who else would understand that than somebody who had also been through the same experience? And I think that is the beauty of Lucy's character, is that she she understands what's going on with him and decides, not right away, but over the course of their relationship, decides to accept it as it is and to accept him as he is. And there's that quite high-tension opening with Lucy, isn't there, when, um, when she leaves the school and she's kind of dumped in East Vancouver, what was kind of the genesis of that? Because it, it kind of is a real page-turning chapter. Um, and I just wondered um, what kind of drew you to kind of open Lucy's story in that way. Well, I wanted to really show, and I wanted people to just think for a minute, that this particular residential school, it's not a real one. I created it out of whole cloth, was, and often they were, but it was it was located in this very isolated area that you could only get to by water. And... This child went there when she was about five or six and had seen nothing of the world, nothing of the world at all, except the island and the school. Okay. At 16, she's put on a bus and tossed into, you know, one of the biggest cities in Canada at the time. And, uh, and I really wanted to emphasize that, how they were so isolated and so unworldly, so unprepared, untrained, unsupported, un-everything, if you will, and yet they were just left to fend for themselves with nothing. And, you know, we have, and I, I know it's true in the States as well, this terrible issue of the missing and murdered Indigenous women um, and how Indigenous women have been predated, you know, preyed on for generation upon generation, for hundreds of years, really. And I wanted to show that deep vulnerability of this little kid, really, she was 16, but so naive, and uh, the danger that putting her, they put her in when they released her from the school this way, and how it just demonstrated an absolute disregard for whatever might happen to her. And as you're talking about Lucy and Kenny, I kind of get the sense that you view them as real people. I just wondered, are they based on real people, or are they uh, products of your imagination, or a kind of amalgamation of both? Not so much based on real people, but based on realities that I understand intimately, okay, from my own life. Like when I first started working with Indigenous organizations, I was 18 years old. I was a little kid myself. And I had just aged out of foster care at the time. So, you know, some of those challenges that those kids were experiencing, I experienced. And I was in Vancouver at that time as well. And uh, and virtually everybody that I was working with 
was a residential school survivor um, or the parent of one or the child of one. And, you know, so I was just all of these people and their idiosyncrasies and how they were surviving themselves was just a part of my life. And I was able to draw on that largely um, for this work. And they <laughs> they really are like real people to me. And in many ways, they felt like my own kids, right? And I, I still feel like there's this big part of my life, these kids. I mean, it took me nine years to create them, nine years to write this book from first paragraph to publication. And I, and I wanted to ask you about that because nine years is a, a long time. And you, you're, you are a lawyer too, right? And you represented indige- an Indigenous people in um, Canada. So I should just ask you about that. Like um, through this process, this nine-year process, did you ever want to give up? And what kept you going um, through this long process? Well, you know, I'd been threatening to write this book for a long time because I was so frustrated for the reasons that I've you know, talked about, like, why can't they just get over it? And, um, but during the time that I, uh, well, I'll just go back a little bit. I, I enrolled in the uh, Masters of Fine Arts at the University of British Columbia, specifically to write this book, because I knew I needed a structure that would make me take the time to do the work, because I'd have obligations to my, you know, my professors, my other student colleagues, and so on. So, but I was still practicing law, and I was still maintaining my own firm. And, uh, you know, it was just a little tiny firm. I was the only lawyer. Right? <laughs> um, but I was incredibly busy. And, um, you know, so I, I, it took some time because obviously, as, as a lawyer, my clients must take priority. But there were times when I just thought, you know, I can't do this. And that, you know, primarily was because my son passed away in 2013, suddenly and without explanation. And you dedicated the book to your son, right? Yeah, yes. And uh, and I felt that he, you know, I, I believe in the afterlife in my own traditional way of believing. And I just felt that he would have been just so disappointed in me if I had succumbed to grief and if I had given up this project, this work. And so... I was very focused on him in those difficult years um, and, you know, just trying to um, not let him down. And, and how old was he when he died? He was just 31. He's very young. Yeah. And um, what are, I know a lot of lawyers um, listen to our podcast. And so I should ask you, since this was a nine year process, um, how did you, what was your writing process? How did you kind of get the words on paper? Did you have like a daily routine? How, how did you, how did you kind of um, approach this? Yeah, I've never really been a daily routine person, which is probably another reason that I, I went into the MFA program because I was driven by our workshop schedules. And you know, what I was doing in the MFA is I'd write a chapter um, or a part of a chapter, chapter, a draft chapter, and then we would workshop it with, you know, with the other students. So I was on that, you know, sort of immovable schedule. Michelle, you're presenting your work on this date, this date, and that date. And so, you know, I, you know, I would work in my law practice, you know, doing whatever I had to do there. And then I would just carve out time in that schedule so that I could meet my obligations and 
and present work at the time. Yeah. And so what about lawyers that maybe are thinking of doing this, maybe writing a first novel and just like, I, I don't have time to do this. What would be your kind of key advice to them to get that first draft down on paper? Well, the first thing is, do you really want to write it? <laughs> you know, I feel very strongly that, you know, we have one life and, uh, you know, it's not a dress rehearsal. And if we have things that we feel compelled to say, then we must. We absolutely must. And uh, And so... You know, I would just recommend that people find, I guess, a practice that's comfortable for them. I don't think that there is sort of a one size fits all. Many people have a writing practice where they wake up early in the morning and they write for several hours and then, you know, carry on with the rest of their day. I've never been like that. I sort of write when the spirit moves me, except when I have to, which is (laughs) why the MFA program helped me in that respect. But you know, if you feel you need to do it, then for goodness sakes, do it. And and if you feel very passionate about it, you'll find the time and you'll find a way. And uh, and I just encourage you. <laughs> and and I know you said um, you've said to me when we spoke last week that it partly took you nine years because of the um, subject. You just wanted to make sure you got it right. Um, was that a big part of it? Well, it was a large part of it. There were times when I would set the work down for months um, because this is not a subject that you want to approach lightly. You don't want to uh, take a subject like this that potentially could trigger and hurt people. You know, you want to get it right. You want to be sure that you are writing those things in a way that is both powerful and gentle, which is... That was my that was my challenge, really, is how can I write this in a way that it won't alienate non-Indigenous writers and it won't hurt survivors if they should pick it up and read it. And so that was a careful balance and one that wasn't easy to strike. And like I say, I would often leave it for months and then go back and read it. And like, oh, my God, I can't. Do- no, 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 no. I got to change that. <laughs> So, and I, and I, I don't regret it taking that long. You know, I, I don't, I think um, giving it the time it needed was the right thing to do. Okay. Well, that seems like a good place to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time consuming and error prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. So 
I'm back with novelist Michelle Good talking about her book, Five Little Indians. Um, so I should ask you about the structure of the book and the decision to um, focus on multiple characters rather than maybe just one or two protagonists. What, what was thinking about that and, and how did it feed into the theme of the book? Well, you know, I, um, I decided right away when I first started writing the first paragraph, I decided I can't. <laughs> I can't just have one character, not even two, because the um, breadth of experience that survivors had in the schools, as well as the impacts of those is so broad that one person couldn't carry it on their shoulders. It would, you know, I needed to have male characters. I needed to have female characters because, you know, if only to demonstrate that boys and girls were segregated in the schools, you know, the dining room was seg segregated, the dorms were segregated, the playground was segregated. They weren't allowed to speak to each other, you know, if only to demonstrate that. Um, and I mean, you, I, I think a lot of people would understand how challenging it would be to have a healthy relationship with somebody when you've never been permitted to speak to, you know, a boy or a girl for that matter. So if only for that reason, but also to, you know, the, the range of responses, people do not respond to trauma all the same way. You know, there are certain characteristics that are that are common um, but everybody responds in their own way, depending on their own level of vulnerability, whether or not they had any kind of therapeutic response after the trauma and so on and so forth. So, so you know, in order to reflect that full experience as best I could, I needed all those characters. I really did. And um, but they emerged quite organically, like I said, with um with Kenny and Lucy. So we have Kenny well-established right from the first page, but you're in a school, so you're surrounded by other children. And it was really just a matter of choosing one of those children in the school to be this important character, this important person to Kenny, and also this very important person to Lucy in, in terms of Kenny. And then, you know, and then Lucy comes to Vancouver and, you know, there's Maisie who's, you know, going to help her. And so, you know, and that's where I developed Maisie's character was, okay, Lucy's going to go to Vancouver. Who's she going to find some support from? Okay, Maisie left the year before. Let's get her into the into the thick of it, if you will. So, um, and then in terms of the structure of the book, as you know, it goes back and forth in time. There's lots of flashbacks. And then because we've got five protagonists, it goes chapter to chapter to chapter is a different character, so to speak. And um, I chose that. I, I just personally love braided narrative. I love it artistically, creatively. Um, it's also challenging and complex, which apparently I'm drawn to. <laughs> and uh, But I think the important thing about braided narrative um, is also that it is more reflective of an Indigenous approach to storytelling. Our storytelling is not linear at all. It's very circular, which is what I was trying to do uh, with this as well, is to have it more reflective of, you know, the Indigenous way of telling a story. And I was going to ask you about the elliptical nature of the story, because um, I found that really striking. And it was almost like, almost like cinematic. We kind of have a character um, in one chapter and then we'll flash forward sometimes years to the next stage of their life. How did you set upon that as a device? And did you did you 
use that device early or did it come with rewriting? No, it was early. And, you know, come to think of it, when I was writing that first chapter, that first Kenny chapter, I wasn't really thinking about structure, right? I I wrote that first chapter with Kenny and then I went, okay, now what? Well, Lucy. And then it started coming to me that this was the way to do it, right? Was to, to it's kind of like, you know, giving them cameos throughout the story and, you know, braiding their stories together to reflect that in effect they were community together and what happened in the past and in the future, they all stayed connected to each other. And I wanted to reflect that, um, but again, in a structure that wasn't entirely linear. And another thing that struck me about the book is that we don't actually spend that much time in the schools, do we? Uh, Most of the story takes place outside the schools when, when the characters have left and grown up. Can you talk a little bit more about that choice? Uh, yes, that was that was the intent of this book. The intent of this book, I'll tell you an anecdote after this. <laughs> the intent of this book was not so much to look at what was going on in the school, because there had been so much work already done on that. There was, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that heard testimony from hundreds and hundreds of, of survivors. There's, as I said earlier, there's, you know, memoirs from survivors. There's been lots in the public eye about what was done to these children. What's missing from the conversation or has been missing to a large degree is what happened after, right? What happened when, you know, after being brutalized, you get tossed out into the world with no support, no resources, no training. You know, girls in the residential school were taught to, uh, was expected that their role in life would be domestic servants boys, it was expected their role in life would be manual laborers. And so they just had nothing. And on top of that, they've got this phenomenal burden of psychological injury that they have to deal with. And that is the answer to the question, why can't they just get over it? And that was the whole point of the book. You want to know why they can't get over it? Read the book. Okay, this is why, because trauma is like radiation. It has a half-life. And it just goes on and on and on. And you said um, what happened at the Canadian residential schools, it's not history and it's happening now. Um, what did you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that there is a real gap in Canadian consciousness when it comes to what was done in the residential schools in that it is not seen as, uh, you know, in the context of the larger colonial initiative to destroy Indigenous people. And I think that is a critical point that they that they that people must begin to understand. They must begin to look at history through an indigenous lens versus through the colonial lens. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, the residential schools um, started closing in 1969, and you know, I think the general public just generally thinks that the government thought, well, you know, this isn't a great thing. Let's stop. That's not why it stopped. Why it stopped was because the employees of the residential school wanted to become uh, federal employees with all of the associated benefits of pensions and vacation leave and, you know, so on and so forth. And the government decided that it didn't want to, you know, foot that expense. And so it started winding down the program. Then what happened is we moved into what is known as the 60s scoop. Okay. So instead of these kids having to go to residential school, social workers started their onslaught 
in terms of apprehending children, Indigenous children, and placing them in non-Indigenous homes. And that was that was my experience. And now, the you know, the 60 Scoop is, is transformed, but child welfare is still apprehending Indigenous children and placing them in care at a phenomenal rate, at just an outrageous rate compared to, you know, the apprehension of non-Indigenous children. So while the uh, administrative mechanism of the residential school may be gone, the intent of the residential school is not gone. It is still being implemented through law and policy. And I should ask you about that too, um, your experience in the foster care system. How much did that inform the book? And also, is there a, a character that um, is based on you um, or you most identify with in, in the story? Well, you know, I experienced many of these things. You know, I uh, I was a little bit older. I was 18 when you age out of um, uh, foster care. But, you know, that day, your 18th birthday, it was just like Lucy, right? It was just like Lucy, your 16th birthday, you're out. <laughs> you know, and there's nothing, right? I, I, did, I wasn't given money to live on. I wasn't given anything. I was just no longer in care. And so... I mean, my situation was a little different because when I was 16, I confronted my social worker uh, and I was struggling with such deep depression. And I told him, I said, you know, I need to live alone. And if I can't, I'm going to die and it's going to be your fault. (laughs) And so they covered the cost of this horrible little, you know, walk up apartment. It was awful, but I thought it was grand. And, uh, and I lived on my own until I was aged out and, you know, but, but still I was financially supported. So then I'm in a position, I've got to find a job, I've got no education and, you know, and so I experienced a lot of those things. There's a scene where, uh, Maisie brings Lucy to the motel, to the Manitou. Um, by the way, the Manitou is a Cree word for the creator. So... You know, Maisie brings Lucy and and that horrible manager, Harlan, tells her to, you know, pull her shirt around herself a little bit tighter so she he can see what size her uniform will be. That happened to me. I went to, you know, and I was I was such a little kid that I didn't understand that I was being preyed on. Right? <laughs> it was just, you know, I thought, oh, OK. <laughs> but, you know, those kinds of experiences I went through. The thing about my experience that I think is uh, that helped me a lot in terms of writing the book was I remember Vancouver of the, you know, early 70s so clearly, so clearly, both in terms of what the city was like, but also in terms of what was happening in the Indigenous movement at the time. And uh, so I think it helped me make the setting very visual, if you will. Um, but I also had that very deep similarity of experience in many ways as well. And no, I don't think that there is a lot of people want to say I'm Clara. Right? A lot of people tag me with the Clara name tag. Um, but it, they, they, they are themselves, these characters. And, you know, as you were saying, it's like they're like real people to me. And they are. And you know, sometimes when I was writing, I would feel like I was more a scribe than the creator of these stories, because it just felt like they were talking to me. They were, you know, telling me what to say, and not only what to say, but particularly with Clara, what not to say. (laughs) 
I would get these feelings like, oh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> so, yeah. Since so many lawyers listen to our podcast, I, I, uh, I must ask you this. Um, what did you learn from being a lawyer and representing Indigenous people and storytelling? Um, and, and how did it help you or, yeah, how did it help you write this book? Well, let's face it. The law is storytelling. Okay. I mean, think about it in litigation. You know, I stand up, I tell the judge or the jury my story, um, and I say, and here's some other stuff, you know, what lawyers refer to as evidence that supports my story. And this is why you should believe my story. Then my, you know, colleague stands up and does the same thing. Well, this is my story, and this is why you should believe my story. And so, you know, I think that that storytelling is inherent in the law. And, uh, you know, and I, I love that aspect of it, actually. But, you know, unfortunately, my experience with the law really brought home to me that it is a system that is deeply embedded in um, racist and colonial tropes or modes, if you will. Um, the foundation of our institutions come from that colonial era. You know, like the Royal Canadian Mounted Police are the, you know, their roots were the Northwest Mounted Police, which was also known as the Canadian Militia, which was for which was formed to suppress Indigenous people. You know, the court system itself, um, and I, you know, and I don't mean to speak harshly because I know that members of the court, members of the judiciary, and of the bar, have really done a lot of work to become more aware of you know, how racism plays out in our systems and so on. But it's such a reality and it's such a challenge to to represent Indigenous issues in a system that was designed to destroy Indigenous people, right? <laughs> what do you do? And I should ask you about that because the U.S. is undertaking its own investigation into the Indian boarding schools here. And actually the ABA last year um, passed a resolution in support of... Um, the investigation and also two pending bills in Congress for a truth and reconciliation process. What should Americans know about this? Because one thing, I, I've got a feature article coming up on this um, this very issue, and many of the Indigenous people I spoke to, a lot of them said that a lot of Americans weren't even aware of the legacy of the boarding schools. Um, so what do you think Americans should know about this as we kind of move forward with our own process? Well, you know, I think they need to understand why they have all of the wealth that they have, right? And that it came from this very, very brutal system of colonialism, both in the U.S. and in Canada. And, um, you know, in terms of the legal process, should it come to that, um, I don't know if there's litigation that's been started um, in the U.S. But what happened in Canada is that we went from a pure, you know, raw litigation approach to these claims, um, which, you know, were sort of shoehorned into personal injury claims, okay, you know, for a period of time until the Chief Justice of the British Columbia Court of, uh, or Supreme Court, called all the lawyers together that were on um, these cases, as well as the Department of Justice, and said, find another way. This is not, you know, where survivors were being, you know, uh, just grilled, uh, in cross-examination, in open court about these horrible abuses that they experienced. And it was just so brutal that even the court said, no, we 
we cannot do this this way anymore. And as a result of that, the um, alternative dispute resolution process came into being. I was involved in assisting in the development of that. And then um, it went into a joining of class actions into what was known as the independent assessment process, where a you know agreed or there was a settlement agreement that outlined how these claims would be settled through an inquisitorial approach as opposed to an adversarial approach. And you know I think that it you know it was a good system. I don't think that compensation was adequate, but it was I think far better than than going through the the litigation approach. I worked for the Department of Justice for a short period of time, um, specifically to assist in developing that um, alternative dispute resolution approach. And that was a nightmare. It was a <laughs> it was a nightmarish experience. I was handling claims on behalf of the Crown, and um, you know was faced so much racism in the Department of Justice, and you know being told that I wasn't objective, and uh, to which I responded. Does objectivity exist? <laughs> and, you know, what about my devout Catholic partner here who, you know, this other lawyer in the team who, you know, felt free to just simply say this is all nonsense and they're just making it up? You know, was she objective? I don't think so. So, you know, it, it, it's such a challenge to separate yourself from your history, separate yourself from your place in society so that you can understand what in fact is going on in terms of these cases, right? That it's so difficult to see beyond, you know, sort of the typical approach to personal injury and to see it as a larger picture of, you know, much deeper and in fact, genocidal harm. So last year, at the um, ABA annual meeting, um, the Canadian, then Canadian Bar Association president, Brad Regeer, he spoke very movingly about the um, what ha- had happened in Canada, particularly with the uncovering of grave sites. I just wonder, what was the impact on the Indigenous people where you are? And I- I'm guessing that we'll be face- soon be facing, well, we already are, we're facing the same reckoning here in the US. Um, but, again, but again, it feels like a lot of people might not know uh, about this. What what can lawyers do to inform people and make them more aware of this legacy and and what happened? Well, you know, about the location of the unmarked graves, that was extremely frustrating to me when the news first started reporting on, you know, first in Kamloops when the first announcement was made of finding the 215 children or graves. And we have been saying this forever, for, you know, a hundred years. Indigenous people have been saying, there are kids that never got home. There are kids that died. There are kids that have been buried there that, you know, we need to sort this out. And, And that's represented in my novel as well with Lily, who dies of TB at the school. You know, so after a hundred years of not listening to us, finally the onus it was still on us to prove it. Okay. Like if you know, let's let's reduce this to an individual situation. Okay. And I, Michelle Good, have good evidence that there are unmarked graves. Let's, you know, it doesn't have to be indigenous people, anybody, but that there's this place where there's a whole bunch of unmarked graves. And I go to the authorities and I say, I know this. And they say, Well, too bad. We don't believe you. (laughs) 
you know, without any investigation. So the Kamloops band had to invest their own resources financially to get the technology that could find those graves because they knew they were there. That onus was placed on us instead of, you know, the the government and the police services doing what should have been a criminal investigation. But this just goes to the ongoing sense that the death of Aboriginal children, of Indigenous children, is unimportant. And it's not, you know, it's similar to, there was a, a way back at the turn of the century, um, Duncan Campbell Scott, who was the head of the Department of Indian Affairs at the time, was getting all of these complaints from parents about illness at the school. So he sent Peter Henderson Bryce, my hero, um, a doctor who was the medical officer uh, for the Department of Indian Affairs to do a survey of, you know, a sampling of the schools. And he wrote back and said, even in war, we don't see these kinds of, of this rate of death in the schools. Um, and at another point said, you know, if we had created a system for the intention, for the purpose of developing uh, an effective way of transmitting tuberculosis. We've done it with the residential schools. Okay. Duncan Campbell Scott responded by firing him and then um, making a statement that while it's true, and this is sort of almost a quote, while it's true that the children die at a much higher rate in the schools than they do in their village, that is not, that in itself is not enough for us to change our policy. And so, and in a subsequent essay wrote that in many cases, up to 50% of the kids died in these schools from tuberculosis. And so, you know, you know the, the official world ignoring us when we've been saying all these years that these children are buried here in unmarked graves comes from that attitude that is so richly woven, so intricately woven into our political governing and social structure that it doesn't matter, that it's it's irrelevant to our overall objective to maintaining power in Canada. And I should ask you, what's next? Um, you wrote this novel, it took nine years. Um, what, what can we expect from you next um, in terms of your second novel? Well, I certainly hope that it doesn't take nine years. I'm running out of time here. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when you started um, Five Little Indians? Well, 56, right? And the book, uh, well, 55, I graduated when I was 56. But, uh, you know, it took all that time. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 66 this year, so I won't necessarily have that much time. But I'm, I'm currently working on a book of essays and uh, a collection of essays. And when that's done, I'm working on a second novel. It's an historical novel, but it, it goes back further. Um, my great-grandmother was born in 1856. I was born in 1956, and I like that symmetry. It's quite beautiful. And She's a very interesting person to base this book on because she never had contact with a non-Indigenous person until she was in her late teens, maybe even 20. And so in that character, regardless of the fact that in Eastern Canada there had been contact for a long time, we have a pre-colonial person who then has contact and then experiences the violence of colonialism directly um, through certain historical events that she was involved in. And so I'm writing that story from the Indigenous perspective because it's written, it's been written so 
um, incorrectly <laughs> from you know the colonial perspective, and so I'm I'm writing that story, and the collection of essays is uh, with the objective of you know they're very they're personal essays, they're not research essays, and it's about uh, what I'm trying to do with them is to is to create an understanding of the whole picture of colonialism, not just this aspect, that aspect, this approach, this law, but the whole picture in a way that is accessible to people, to the average reader. And so it's it's a challenge, but I'm enjoying it. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show today, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Um, thanks very much for, for taking the time to talk to me about this really important issue today. Well, thank you so much for reaching out. It was a real pleasure. For anyone interested in learning about the legacy of the schools, I'd thoroughly recommend Michelle's book. I'm Matt Reynolds for the ABA Journal, filling in for your usual host, Lee Rawls. Thank you for listening to today's show, and if you enjoyed it, please rate us on your favourite podcasting app.